0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are going to uh, be finishing today our um, yeah we're going to be finishing today our series in the Old Testament. We've been looking at the Old Testament, taking kind of quite uh, brisk, long um, steps through the Old Testament for the last eight weeks or so, uh, and, and really there is one unified story in the Old Testament. And that story culminates with, uh, is fulfilled by, and is all about, Jesus Christ. That's what this whole series has been about, showing that Jesus Christ is really central to the whole Old Testament narrative. So to give a bit of a brief summary of that story, and really where we've been over the last seven or so weeks, God created His people to live in His place under his blessing and rule. But sin came along and sin ruined that. And so God promised to Adam and Eve that he was going to come and fix it. Uh, He was going to send a descendant from Adam and Eve and that descendant would crush the head of the snake. And as he crushed the head of the snake, that snake would bite his heel. It would come at the cost of his life. That promise then became more refined as we get to Genesis 12 and 15, and we're introduced to Abraham. And God promises to restore his people to his place under his blessing uh, through the offspring of Abraham. And it gets a bit more refined as we understand that this descendant is going to come from the line of Abraham. It gets a bit more specific as we get to Abraham. one of Abraham's great-grandsons, Judah, that we find out that actually Judah is from the family of Judah that God is going to send this descendant. <clears throat> We then follow the story as Abraham's family, the Israelites, were uh, held as as captives in Egypt and were led out of Egypt by Moses through the desert into the promised land where they were taught by God how to be God's people, what he required of them and who he was to them. And despite Israel's ongoing failure, God continued to be faithful to them. They were continually faithless towards him, unfaithful towards him, but he was faithful to them, promising That king, promising to King David that he would have a descendant who would fulfill this promise, who would fulfill these promises. And so Israel began waiting for this king from the line of David, this Davidic king, to come along and make all things right. And then each one of the descendants of David. They failed in some way. And even though the prophets warn God's people, their sin accumulates, and God brings his discipline and his justice upon his people, and they are carried off into exile. And that's where we got to last week. And today we're looking at the final story of the final part of the story of the Old Testament. As we land this plane, we're looking at how this whole thing wraps up and then points towards the New Testament. To help us understand God's intent, to help us understand God's purposes for this time, we're looking at while they were in exile and their return. So the, 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 the people of Judah, God's people, we're looking at while they were in exile in Babylon. And to help us understand God's intent behind their exile and his intent behind their return, we're going to be looking today at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, which is how we started the service this morning. So Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. God says... For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know the plans that you have for us. Those plans, Lord, are for our well-being, not for disaster. Those plans are to give us a future. Those plans are to give us a hope. And so, Lord, we receive that this morning. We need your hope, Lord. So, Father, as we spend this time in your word, my prayer to you is that you would draw our gaze heavenward, Lord. You would draw our eyes to you, not to the stuff around us this morning, not to the stuff that was happening at home, not to the stuff that's happening in the world. You draw our gaze to you, Lord. Fix our eyes upon you this morning. Holy Spirit, lead us, point us in that direction. Hold us there, Lord. Amen. Well, uh, this weekend, three years ago, I had a really wonderful experience of coming home. Uh, Kirstie and I, three years ago and before this moment, it was about six or eight weeks uh, before this particular moment, uh, we had moved to the Sunshine Coast. And we had moved to the Sunshine Coast after about four years of what we call our no-man's-land years. Four years where we... A wonderful four years, a great four years. Four years where we made lots of great friends and and really God did a good work in us. But uh, four years as we were transitioning, as we were following God's call to, to come and plant this church, at the Sunshine Coast. And those four years, we spent that time house-sitting for some people, living in in, in smaller houses uh, while we were saving up so we could build a house and do all that kind of thing. And four years of feeling like we were in no man's land, like we weren't actually home, like we didn't actually have our home yet. And then on this weekend, three years ago, uh, I had just finished serving down at the Gold Coast with schoolies with Red Frogs, and I had spent 10 days away from home, and if you've ever done Red Frogs, you know about it, it's, all, it's all-nighters, you're, you're tired, you're exhausted, and all you want is to go home and just sleep in your bed, because you sleep in two or three different hotel rooms, sometimes you're sleeping on the floor, sometimes it's just a pretty horrible situation sometimes, and I just was desiring to go home. And so I hopped in the car at the Gold Coast and started driving back, and I drove through Brisbane, which had been our home for, for, my home for 32 years, and that was no longer home for me. And I kept driving towards the Sunshine Coast, and we'd only been living here for six or eight weeks, but the closer I got, the more I just felt like, yes, we're home. Well, I'm coming home. And then we came home, we arrived, and, and I think there's a picture up there behind me of that weekend, that day, we came home, and... We had fish and chips at the beach, at Moffat Beach, and it was this wonderful moment of feeling, yes, I'm home. Like, there was this, like, that, 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 those photos behind me are a big standout memory to me, and I'm grateful for, I'm not grateful for, to Facebook for many things, but I'm grateful for Facebook because it reminded me of that this week, and I went, that's exactly what I want to share on Sunday, coming home. There's nothing quite like coming home. The reason why I share that with you today is because the story that we're looking at today, we're picking up the story of Israel after they were evicted from their homes and taken as captives into the kingdom of Babylon. And we've got to consider for these people, for God's people, for the Jews, just how totally disorientating that would have been. Just how totally, uh, just the huge upheaval that would have been in their lives, God's people had to leave their homes, leave their possessions, leave their um, their employment. They had to leave their friends. They would have known friends and family who had been killed in this process. And suddenly they were slaves and they were captors in Babylon. How are they going to survive? How does a Jew survive in Babylon? How is a Jew supposed to live and, and, and just be in Babylon? And the question that arises in this moment is, Can God really bring anything good out of this? Can God bring anything good out of this situation? And this is why we read Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 this morning. Because God does have a plan. God is in control. And he wants his people to know that God will bring something good out of this. Maybe you're looking at the world around you. And you're you're wondering... What's going on? Maybe you're feeling pretty disorientated. I know I am. Like we've always known that the future is uncertain, but that feels very real right now. Maybe you're anticipating what the next few months, maybe the next few years is going to look like, what it's going to hold for you, and it's causing anxiety. And as I've caught up with many of you over the past few weeks, I know that some of you are feeling the pinch of this in really serious ways. Like, if you, go back to, if you were to go back to 2019 and say, this is what the next couple of years is going to look like, would you believe yourself? Like, it's pretty nuts. Well, we need to remember that God does have a plan. God is in control, and God wants his people to know that he will bring something good out of this. And I would even go so far as to say, God is bringing something good out of this. If you're a Christian, then your future is incredibly bright. Not because God prevents us from walking through hardships, not because God prevents us from walking through pain, but because God sustains us as we walk through hardships, and God sustains us as we walk through pain. And God does have an incredibly bright future for us. So it was important for God's people as they went off to Babylon to know that they had a future that God himself had planned as they were taken into exile because the knowledge of that future, the knowledge that God does have a future for them was imperative for them to be able to know how they should act and function while they're actually in Babylon, while they're in exile. You see, there was a few options for how they could have responded while they're in exile. One option could be rise up and rebel against the Babylonians, rebel against our captors, cause an insurrection, rebel and and, and try and take them out. They had tried this in recent memory, and it was a disaster for them. Another option could have been for some of those people to try and just blend in, survive at all costs, even if it means forsaking and, and and... leaving your faith in God, just just assimilate, just become like the Babylonians, just blend in, survive at all costs. But both of those options would have resulted, likely, in the disappearance of God's people. Rebel and you'll be destroyed. Assimilate and you'll disappear altogether. But God gave his people another way. God gave his people a third way, the prophet Jeremiah was prophesying during this time and he sent a letter to the exiles who were in Babylon at that time outlining how they should live, what the what their conduct should be while they are in exile. And the content of this letter is what we find in Jeremiah chapter 29. So reading from verse 4, Jeremiah writes, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, just in case you're wondering who deported those exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon, God's saying right there, I did it. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. There it is again. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. God was giving his people a third way to live. Not to rebel, not to assimilate, but to live for the blessing of the land that God had sent them to with an eye on the future that he was promising them. They were called to live for the blessing that God had sent them to with an eye on the future that he was promising them. You see, God's desire for them in that time was that they would thrive. And so he instructs them to seek the welfare and the prosperity of Babylon. Because when their captives thrive, captives thrive, God's people will thrive too. Their future was incredibly bright because one day God was going to bring them home to Jerusalem. We can pick this up in verse 10. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. That's Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. If God's people rebel and fight against their captors, it's likely they'll be wiped out. If God's people just try and blend in and assimilate into Babylonian culture, it's likely that they'll disappear. But there's now this third way, the way of the exile, the the Jeremiah 29 way, which was to integrate with the culture, but as the people of God who knew that this wasn't the end of their story. Their future was incredibly bright. And so they should be part of that culture, seeking its benefit when necessary but resisting it when the time comes because they were still the people of God and God was still going to bring them home. So, how does this play out for God's people? How do they do this? Well, fortunately, we've got a bunch of records from their time in exile in the books of Daniel and Esther. So looking at the book of Daniel first. At the start of the exile, a group of Hebrew men who were part of the cultural elite of the Jewish community were selected to be educated and trained in Babylonian culture. Basically, it's a fast track to assimilation. Like, just get the brightest, the best, the most good-looking, the young, influential leaders of the community, make them just like the Babylonians, and they'll influence the rest of the captives, the rest of of God's people, to be just like Babylon, and they will basically conquer by assimilation. Daniel was among this group. So, too, were three of his friends, three young guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who you might know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But instead of fully submitting to this program, they adopt this Jeremiah 29 way, the way of the exile. They go along with the program that they were enlisted in, which was meant to actually result with them serving the king in his palace. They go along with this program and and they learn the language. They have to now speak the language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They now have to uh, learn the customs and operate in their customs. And their names were even changed from their Hebrew names to Babylonian names, which is a much bigger deal than we might think. It's not just James to Jimmy. It's named after their god to name after a pagan god. But by their actions, they critique the program that they were enrolled in, and they offer a better way. They didn't want to be defiled by the food and the drink of the Babylonians, and so they refused opting for vegetables and water instead. This was risky. But this was where they were drawing the line. To someone on the outside, it must have looked like these guys were just totally rolling over and assimilating into Babylonian culture, adopting pagan culture. But they did have a line which they weren't going to cross. And not only did it it pay off for them, but it improved the program that they were in. God blessed them, and they were catapulted to the highest ranks of Babylonian culture. Later in the story... Each of them were confronted with other moments where the stakes got much higher. For Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they refused to bow down to the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Defending their position, they offered that wonderful line in Daniel chapter 3. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Daniel also has his own high stakes moment where he refuses to cross that line which would have forbidden him from praying to God. These men were willing to participate and engage with even build up the culture of the society and the, and the nation that had captured them. They were willing to play ball, they were willing to be, to be part of it and, and help build it. But they also knew that God had a future for them and a plan for them. He hadn't given up on them, and he was going to bring about his good plan for their their situation. And they held their ground. God prospered them so that after each time this happened, the king at the time spoke so highly of them, he even defended them. And that's just incredible, right? That if God can cause these pagan kings to praise him, there's nothing that he can't do. The Jeremiah 29 way, the way of the exile, it's this way of being wise and navigating the culture that they're in. To go, what what battles are we going to fight here? Where can we be a blessing to this nation? Where do we have to stand for our faith? A similar story of navigating life in exile is found in the story of Esther, who uh, years later was thrust into the upper echelons of this foreign society. Now for Esther, she could have blended in easily. It wasn't common knowledge that she was a Jew, and she had all, she had all the access to the, all the ease and all the comfort that this world could offer. Alternatively, she could have used her position in power to actually take vengeance on those people who captured her and her, her people, the same people who brought her family out of Jerusalem, the same people where her parents were killed. But she instead adopts this Jeremiah 29 way, the way of the exile. And she recognizes that God has a future for her people and has chosen her to play an instrumental role in that future. As a result, God's people are preserved against incredible odds. Like really, if you go back and you read Esther, God, the survival of God's people were hanging on by a thread. And that thread's name was Esther. Like it was, it's, it's an amazing read. I highly recommend it. You see, the way of the exile that God prescribed for his people during that time in captivity in Jeremiah 29 is to remember that God is the sovereign one who holds all of the strings and that whatever we come across in this life, we need to remember that we are God's people and his plans for us are for our good. What's the good? What's the good that God has planned for us? Well, according to Romans 8, it's to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, the best thing that could ever, we could ever hope for in this life is not stability, it's not certainty, it's not comfort, it's not riches, it's not whatever we think will make us happy, but to be more and more like Jesus. This means that the decisions that you have to make this week need to be made with the knowledge that God is for you, and God has a plan for you, a future for you, and that future is incredibly bright. It's to become like Jesus. And God is working through every moment of you of this week. He's going to be working through every decision you make and every decision that is made for you, big or small, to make you more like Jesus. The stories of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah show that God was still faithful to establish his purposes, his kingdom, even though his people were in exile and even though they were experiencing persecution for being faithful to God. The story of Esther shows us that God is at work even when we don't see it and even when hope seems to be hanging on by a thread. Can I encourage you, if you are struggling with everything that's going on in the world right now and you've got anxiety, go home and read Daniel and Esther. Wonderful, wonderful read. Give us comfort that God is at work. Seventy years pass after their exile. And by the Lord's providence, God allows his people to return home. And this is what is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra begins with this instruction from King Cyrus of Persia that fulfills the word of the Lord. King Cyrus writes, this is what the king of Persia says. This is in Ezra chapter 1 verse 2. This is what the king Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. It's quite a dramatic turn of events that this King Cyrus would say, hey, go back and rebuild the temple and let me fund it. And if anybody's living nearby and you know a Jew, give them your stuff. They've got to go back and build this temple. So the people of God return to their homeland and they start to rebuild this temple. And the, re- and the rebuild project happens over the course of many years, in waves over the course of many years. But when Israel get home, it wasn't exactly home sweet home. A lot had changed in these 70 years. On the one hand, they found that their circumstances had changed. Their land had been drastically reduced in size. There were other people now who were living in that land and they'd been living there for 70 years. Some of these people were Jews who got left behind and didn't go into exile. Some of them weren't Jews. They were pagans who moved into the area and married into the Jewish families. Furthermore, even though they were at home, they didn't have complete autonomy. It wasn't that Cyrus sent sent them off and said, hey, go be your own kingdom. Go establish your own king. It's all fine. They were still under the rule of the Persians. They were still under the rule of King Cyrus and any king that came after him. Which meant that if, if there were any dramas, they still had to go back to Babylon and they could go back to Persia, to the king of Persia, to, ba- to Cyrus and Darius, Xerxes, to, to actually get permission to do whatever they wanted to do. But it wasn't just that their circumstances had changed. They also found that their hearts hadn't changed. And reestablishing obedience to God's law proved really problematic. There were these moments of of great triumph where God's people swore fidelity to God, that they were going to serve God wholeheartedly. But they don't go the full length. They kind of start, but it fizzles out and it's a bit disappointing. And then when they do go the full box and dice to obey God's law, they do it in ways that is damaging to people. They, They hurt people and they divide families. It's an uncomfortable read when you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, to say the least. A similar thing occurs when they attempt to rebuild the city. The prophets of that time were saying Jerusalem is meant to be a light to the nations. This is what the promise to Abraham was all about. And yet instead of being a light to the nations, Israel, they they focused on building these walls around Jerusalem to try and keep the pagans out, to try and keep the rest of the nations out of there. But perhaps the most significant thing about this story occurred during the reconstruction of the temple. Led by a man named Zerubbabel, the temple was the first project that they undertook after they returned. And even though the rebuilding of the temple was met with quite severe opposition, they managed to lay the foundation of the temple. They managed to get the foundation laid. And when the foundation is complete, they get together to celebrate. And a strange scene emerges. Because they, they get together to celebrate that we've laid the, te- the foundation of the temple. It's fantastic. And there's a whole lot of people who are really, really excited about this temple finally going up. But then there's a whole lot of older people who begin to weep and to mourn. You see, they, they remembered what the, old tes- what the old temple was like. They, rem- they saw Solomon's temple. And they're looking at the foundation of this new temple, this second temple, and going, that's not the same size. It's not, it doesn't have the same kind of size and grandeur. This is not... This is not it. So mixed was the scene there that in Ezra 3.13, it says that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly. And that scene of people shouting loudly in celebration and people weeping and mourning and crying and wailing gives us a, a bit of a visual insight of the spiritual state of God's people. It was a mix of joy and sadness. They were in their land, but they were still ruled by these foreign powers. Yes, they had God's law, but they managed to abandon God's law just as easily as their ancestors did. It was as if their time in exile was still cast in a long shadow over their existence. They were home, but despite their best efforts, it was like there was still an important piece missing to all of this. Probably the most significant thing to happen here, or maybe not to happen, took place when they finally did finish the temple. You see, see, if you've been reading through the Bible left and right, then you'd expect the same thing to happen here that happened at the completion of the tabernacle with Moses and the temple with Solomon. At each of those occasions, when the dedication ceremonies took place, God's glory descended like a cloud upon that temple and upon that tabernacle and filled it So that in the tabernacle, Moses could not remain in the tabernacle, but he had to leave. And the priests could not remain in the temple, they had to leave. It was as if the glory of the Lord drove them out of the temple. And, And to fully get our heads around this scene, we also need to know that just before Judah was taken into exile, God gave the prophet Ezekiel a vision of his presence leaving the temple. Leaving the temple that Solomon made. So at the completion of the new temple, the second temple, you'd expect the same cloud to descend and fill the temple with God's glory. But it doesn't. It doesn't happen. They dedicate it, they offer sacrifices, they do all that. But God's presence seems to be missing. That visual representation of God's presence seems to be missing. And to not have that cloud experience that was really significant almost as if this fulfillment was only partial, almost as if it was pointing to an even brighter future than what they could imagine. And I want to focus on this temple a bit for a bit, because it helps us to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament, and it shows us how this future that God promised them is fulfilled for all of us in Jesus. You see, in John chapter 2, Jesus entered the temple, the second temple, so let's just remain zoomed out for a moment so we can remember what's going on here, understand the significance of this. God's temple descend, God's glory descended on the tabernacle, descended on the first temple, didn't descend on the second one, and actually left the first temple in that vision to Ezekiel. God's glory doesn't come. God doesn't The, the visual representation, t- representation of God coming into the temple doesn't happen. And then here in John chapter 2, Jesus, who is God, and John has made sure his readers know very well at this stage, in John chapter 1, that Jesus is actually God. Jesus enters the temple. It was God entering the temple. And so if we're paying attention, we should look very intently at what's going on. What's going to happen when Jesus enters the temple? What does he do? He drives people out of it. Not with a cloud, but with a whip. He disapproved what the temple had become. And when he, when he was questioned about it, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he was talking about his body. And this makes the message crystal clear. The time of the temple has now come to an end. Jesus, who was the true and better temple, had now come and he was creating something new. And like we looked at last, oh, two weeks ago, sorry, this house of God that Jesus came to build was The church. The house of God that, that sorry, the people of God could now gather wherever, which means that they would be the house of God. And then, if you follow this progression in Acts, Jesus sends his followers out into the world, away from Jerusalem, into the world to grow and to build God's kingdom on earth. Not to be separated from the world and segregated from the from the people around them, but sent into the world to show the world who Jesus is and show the world that following Jesus is the better way to live our lives. And that's our message. Jesus is better than anything else you've got going on because Jesus solves your greatest need. You might not think this, but the biggest problem in your life right now is the sin which continues to, threat, continues to separate us from God, threaten to separate us from God. And Jesus is the only one who can solve that problem. If you're here and you don't believe that, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and find out what you think is better than Jesus. Because you're wrong. And I'd love to tell you that to your face. Because when you realize that, when you realize how wrong you are, it'll be the happiest day of your life. Jesus is better than anything else we've got going on. So Jesus sends his disciples out into the world. And one of them was Peter. Peter was the guy, the first guy, to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And when he said that, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, when he said that, Jesus said, yeah, that's right. And I'm going to build that house that was promised and that house is going to be the church. So Peter is sent out into the world by Jesus. And then years later, Peter writes a letter to the churches, not in Jerusalem, but in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And how does he address the letter to this church? He addresses it to them as the elect exiles. By doing that, he's identifying the people of God, the Christians, with the people of God who were in exile in Babylon hundreds of years earlier. By calling them elect exiles, he's saying that a Christian is someone who has been chosen by God and sent into the world that they are no longer part of. Not to live like the world, not to be segregated from the world, but to live for the sake of blessing that world, offering a better way, which is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian, you're an exile. Your citizenship is not here on earth, but in heaven. You and I live in this world which is not our home. Our home is in heaven with our Heavenly Father, but right now we live in this foreign world. And this world is marred by sin. It's a world that needs to hear that there is a better way to live, and that way is Jesus. A buddy of mine is a pastor in Texas. His name is Kyle Black, and he preached in his sermon last week along these lines, and he said, We are called to become a vision of the life beyond the temporary. Isn't that great? We are called to become a vision of the life beyond the temporary. We need to live for heaven, live for for our understanding that that we have a very bright future ahead of us. There's that old saying, uh, you can be so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. You can be so earthly minded that you also know earthly good. We should live for heaven, understanding that God has a very bright future ahead of us and people should see that. When they see us, they should see that light. They should taste that salt. They should be able to smell the exile all over us. And like those exiles in Babylon, our future is incredibly bright. You might find that really hard to believe right now, but it's true. I'm not glossing over the pain that some of us have felt in the last few months, the last couple of years, even the last few days. I'm not glossing over that. If we went around this room and everyone shared, we would have dozens, if not hundreds of stories of people feeling just totally disoriented with the world that they are in. We don't know what the right way forward is sometimes. Sometimes we make decisions and we've got no idea if we made the right decisions or not. It's difficult. If the last couple of years has taught us anything, it's that we don't know what our future holds. We don't know what the plan is. But here's the good news. Jeremiah 29:11 29, 29, For I know the plans I have for you this is the Lord's declaration plans for your well-being not for disaster to give you a future and a hope Some people have a bit of a problem with Jeremiah 29:11 it's recognized as probably one of the most uh, out of context scriptures ever quoted People use it all the time And I think I understand what people are saying when they find that hard. Like, some people, if you're you're quoting Jeremiah 29.11, you think it means that God's never going to let anything bad happen to you in this life. That's not That's not what's going on. And so as a result, people often talk about Jeremiah 29.11 as you've got to quote that in context, you've got to quote that in context. Well, I'm quoting it in context. And Peter calls us exiles, which means we should quote Jeremiah 29.11 every day this week alone and the next week and the week after that why because we're in exile this is not our home we look forward to a bright future one day it's going to be wonderful we're going to see Jesus face to face but right now this is not our home our citizenship is not here and yet we are called to still go to this world go into this world with the gospel seeking to bless this world seeking the welfare of the world around us Our future is incredibly bright because God is at the helm and he is good and he has planned out our future. He knows those plans even though we don't. And the knowledge of that enables us to live the exilic life, the Jeremiah 29 life, which is the life of Jesus Christ. We have immense hope in the future that God has planned for us. And I hope by now you know I'm talking about so much more than just this side of eternity. We're looking at... We're talking about what happens after death. And that enables us to live the exilic life, the the Jeremiah 29 life, the life of Jesus. So, how do we do that? Well, I've got four things, four practical ways. Number one, serve the people around you. Take up your cross, lay down your life, and set your mind to serve in the agenda of others and not your own. You see, each one of us has an agenda for ourselves, a means by which our hearts are trying to keep us at the center of the universe. But because we know that Jesus served us and laid down his life for us, we are now freed up to do the same for others. Let me ask this question. Is your life more about you or about the people around you? And you've got to be honest with yourself as you answer that question. If I'm honest, I struggle to make it about the people around me, even the close people, the people I love, the people I like. I still want them to be about me. What does it look like to serve those around us? You've got to think to yourself, what does what the person sitting next to me, what does this person sitting behind me or in front of me need right now? What has the last seven days held for them? What are the next seven days going to hold for them? What do they? What do they need? And, and how can I meet that need? And the more that costs us, the better. So number one, serve the people around you. Number two, love your enemies. Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A good exercise to try and to, a good exercise to try out is to think of the person who represents the opposite of your way of thinking. It might be someone that you know, a friend of yours, a family member, a colleague, a neighbour, could be a politician or a celebrity, someone you've only seen on TV. Think about that person. Someone who just represents the complete opposite to you in every way of thinking. And if if I can invite you into one of the darkest parts of your hearts, I want you to imagine that you somehow are able, you somehow found yourself holding their fate in your hands. And you can do whatever you like to them with impunity. No consequences. Where does your heart go? Like, if you could just do whatever you want to that person who just drives you nuts, where does your heart go? I know my heart goes to some pretty terrible places. And that's just for people who, like, cut me off in driving. <laughs> I think the most horrible things about them, like... Like, you probably wouldn't want me as your pastor if you know what went through my mind at those times. Like, oh gosh, like I can't believe that actually entered my thoughts. What if we were to become more like Jesus? And instead of da- dwelling on the downfall of the people around us who don't agree with us, we stop thinking that way and instead choose to think about the ways that we can pray for them and love them. We start to treat them like the way Jesus has treated us. He died for us that our our guilt could be removed and so our shame could be covered up. If you enjoy fantasizing about the downfall of those who oppose you, then you need to to be smacked in the face with the grace and love of Jesus Christ for you. Not just smacked in the face, I didn't mean that. (laughs) Smacked in the face with the grace and love of Jesus Christ. You might need to smack in the face as well. I do. Number three, do good critique our cultural standards by offering a better way. So when an irritating driver needs you to let them in, let them in. When someone has stretched you to to your absolute limit and you're about to burst, go with them the extra mile. When you're presented the opportunity to run that red light or speed up that extra bit or send that text while driving or cut that corner at work or lie a little bit just to make yourself look a bit better, don't. Why? Because we've got a very, very bright future. We want to show the world around us that there is a better way to live that no longer requires us to do those things. Offer the better way of Jesus. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Seek to bless the world around you. When When you wake up tomorrow morning, remember that you've been chosen by Christ. And he has, been, he has sent you into this world, into that day, sent into that cafe, into that workplace, into that classroom, into that clinic, into that site, into that street, into that household, to be his representatives in there, showing them the way of Jesus. Number four, store up treasures in heaven. Remember that this life is temporary, and so our investments into this life, and into the sorry, into the life that has, into the life to come, have got to be more important than one than what we're investing here on earth. The world says, "Get rich, then you'll be happy," but Christians say, "Yeah, earn money for sure, but live for heaven and be generous with it now." The world says, "Buy the house, then you'll be happy." Christians say, get the house, sure, but invite people into it. Be generous with it. Invite your neighbors into it. Invite the stranger into it. Invite the poor. Invite the smelly. Invite your enemies. Invite them in. Don't look at this world as if this is all there is. In fact, look at this world and lament for the way that sin has broken this world and look forward to a better future while we pursue the well-being of this world around us. There are other things that I can mention there, but We do these things because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus laid down his life for us even though we weren't worthy. Jesus loved us even while we were enemies with him. Jesus satisfies us so that the pressure is off other things to satisfy us. Jesus lived the perfect life for us. So the pressure to perfect the good life is not on us anymore and we're now freed up to honor Jesus by doing good. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve so that we could be brought back into that relationship with God, have our lives orbit around him and be freed up to live for him. This is what the Old Testament has been pointing to this whole time. It's been pointing to the fact that our lives only make sense when they orbit around Jesus Christ. We were created to be God's people, to live in God's place, under God's blessing. Sin messed that up, and the story of the Old Testament is the story of God pointing to the time where he would come and fix everything, and he fixed that through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We are made into God's people by receiving his grace and love for us. We come under his rule when we accept his righteousness, and he will one day bring us to his place where we will be with him forever, seeing him face to face. And a lifetime of struggle and pain and regret and confusion and difficulty will be justified inside of a minute of being with Jesus. We're going to get into heaven. We're going to see Jesus' face. And we'll think about these hardships and we'll say, yeah, worth it. Absolutely worth it. Until then, we are exiles, sent into this world to bless it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the Old Testament. I'm done. But one final thing, if you can bear with me for just five more minutes. You'll notice, as you get to the end of the Old Testament, that when you turn from Malachi to Matthew, you might not notice this actually, when you turn from Malachi to Matthew, you're turning past about 400 years of Middle Eastern history. This period, which is often referred to as the 400 years of silence, is incredibly not silent, but busy. And important, and there's a lot going on here. So I want to just give you a bit of a, a really brief overview of 400 years of Middle Eastern history. So it was the Babylonians who took God's people away from Judea. This is what we've been studying in the last few weeks. Uh, into the into exile in about 587 B.C. And while they were there, the Babylonians were conquered by the much friendlier Persians in 539 BC, which is why in Daniel the king's change, it starts with Nebuchadnezzar and then Darius and then Cyrus and Xerxes, etc. When God's people returned to Judea, they were still under Persian rule, but then the Persians were ruled by Alexander the Great, leading the Greeks in 323 BC, kind of like Israel came under new management, like they got a new boss. Alexander died soon after, and his kingdom was then divided amongst his, between his successors. And Judea, the people of the land where Israel lived in Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem was caught in between a war amongst the kingdoms that had been divided in the, Greek, in the Greek kingdom. In 301 BC, the Ptolemies of Egypt won control over Jerusalem and Judea, and they ruled Jerusalem and Judea for about 140 years. Now, importantly, during that um, reign, during that time, Ptolemy I deported many Jews to his capital in northern Egypt called Alexandria, including the majority of the descendants of David. David's family line, a lot of them ended up in Alexandria, and this meant that Israel's hopes for, the line of David, for a king from the line of David to rule over Israel, they were getting pretty slim. It also meant... But when it came to matters matters of government and sorting themselves out as a nation, it was the priests who stepped up to govern the people. And this gave rise to several different factions of of Judaism. There were the more progressive Jews who were keen to saddle up with the Greeks, and then there were the more conservative Jews who were keen to keep their distance from the the Greeks and preserve their customs. In 198 BC, the Seleucid Empire conquered Jerusalem and Judea. But then in 167 BC, they got fed up with the Jews, enacted a massacre, and basically stripped the Jews from, of their rights from the people within the empire. And they did some pretty horrible stuff to the Jews. And it actually provoked the more conservative Jews and a family of priests called the Hasmoneans who eventually became known as the Maccabees, which roughly translates as the Hammers, because they came and they hammered, um, revolted against their overlords and waged guerrilla warfare against them and actually won. The, the Jews then marched back into Jerusalem and they became their own sovereign state again with Simon Maccabeus as their high priest slash king. Now, the priests weren't meant to rule over God's people. That was the king's job on behalf of God. And so the very clever Simon Maccabeus, who was ruling over Jerusalem at this time, he sought to retain power for him and his descendants. And so what he did is he changed the constitution so that he and his descendants would only rule so long as a prophet of God didn't arise and announce that a new Davidic king was going to sit on the throne. But then Simon made sure that no prophets were allowed to speak which meant that him and his family were able to rule over Jerusalem during that time, which is why it's often called the time of silence. So at this stage, the prospect of a Davidic king sitting on the throne was becoming less and less a reality. So the Jews ruled themselves for a number of years, but not without opposition until in 63, uh, 63 BC, an empire that had been rapidly growing from the, from the West, known as the Roman Empire, came and conquered Jerusalem. Now... The Romans were very keen to have someone that they could trust ruling over Jerusalem, and so they appointed a guy named Antipas, who was a half-Jewish guy, to that role. Antipas married off his son, Herod, who he now known as Herod the Great, to a princess from the Maccabean family, thus setting the stage for a new dynasty, the Herodian dynasty. Now, Herod wanted to legitimize his rule over the Jewish people, And so he started acting like a son of David, doing things that David's son Solomon did. First of all, he erected a memorial statue to David in the temple. And then, like Solomon, he set about doing massive renovations to the temple, attempting to restore it to its former glory. He wanted to be seen as the son of David. He wanted to be seen as the one who had come to fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, this would have been very, very strange for the Jews because he was this king who not only, he he wasn't a descendant of David, but also his Jewishness was pretty sketchy. And yet he was doing all of these things that only a Davidic son would do, only a son of David would do. But then, on one particular day, Herod heard that some visitors from the east had followed a star to Jerusalem and they were searching for the king of the Jews. And there was a rumour now circulating amongst Jerusalem that the true son of David had been born. And that's where we're going to end today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us,